turning today to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1 and verse 18. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And our subject is the preeminence of Christ the Lord. And we begin with this verse, 18 of Matthew chapter 1. The birth of Jesus Christ, says the King James Version, was on this wise, in this way, simply put. His mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. Well, you know very well the narrative of the incarnation of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. But we're going to be looking at some of the treasures of the incarnation for our reflection today to bring glory and honour to his name. His mother Mary is said to have been espoused to Joseph, betrothed to Joseph. And you may very well know that a betrothal in that culture, among the Jews, in those days, was something much, much deeper and firmer than an engagement, say, today. It was, to all intents and purposes, a marriage. A man and a woman made vows and promises before God, and they would be described as husband and wife from the moment of the betrothal, but they did not yet live together. It may seem curious to us, but this was the custom, the manner in which it was done. They were married, and yet they were not yet together, had not yet made a home together. And so it is here in the scripture, even before the birth of Christ and their ultimate and their coming together, they're described as husband and wife. So a betrothal was as good as a marriage. It was a very solemn, firm and lasting thing. But there was a period of time. Difficult to establish what it was. Various authorities say differently and experts in the culture at the time. But it could have been up to a year sometimes before the two who were pledged to each other came together. And it was in that period that Mary was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Verse 18. Of course, Mary had been told in advance. She had had the great privilege of an angelic appearance. She had been told that she would give birth that her child would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he would be the Messiah, the coming Christ. She was mystified, astonished and amazed. But nevertheless, she had been told. And so for her, it was somewhat expected. She was found with child. 
But verse 19, you know the narrative. Joseph, her husband, being a just man, a righteous young man, and not willing to make her a public example, he loved her. He was utterly perplexed. He could not understand this. Perhaps he'd been told, but it hadn't come home to him. He couldn't take it in quite, that this was of the Holy Spirit. And uh, because he loved her, he wasn't going to go the usual route and make a public example of her and have her exposed and divorced in that way. He was going to take another route that was open to him for a kind of private, quiet separation and divorce. And that was the route he would take. Verse 20, But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream. It was a night vision, apparently. Joseph, thou son of David, descendant of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. She is, she is already his wife, you see. They are betrothed, but fear not to take her unto thee, to go under the same roof and now live as husband and wife together. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, Saviour, for he shall save his people from their sins and from the condemnation and the punishment which comes to us all because of sin. A Saviour is provided. He will be the way of pardon and forgiveness. But then Matthew goes on to work to a great quotation from prophecy. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 he quotes saying Behold a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which being interpreted is God with us. So Isaiah is quoted from his seventh chapter Behold, a virgin shall conceive, says the text in Isaiah. When I was a boy, I do remember that at school, and I'm going back practically 70 years here, the idea that Isaiah had ever said, a virgin shall conceive, was ridiculed in the religious instruction lesson. That's happened millions of times. The passage was ridiculed. It's a mistranslation, declared the teacher. Really? Oh yes, apparently we were told the text doesn't say a virgin shall conceive. It uses a Hebrew word, which is an elastic word, which can equally mean a young married woman or any young woman. A young married woman. This was the claim. So Isaiah never really said that. That's just the translator's imagination. 
And that's what I was taught as a, as a lad. And I've heard that times without number. I've seen it on the television, authoritatively and scornfully delivered by someone or other. I've heard it on the radio. I've had people tell me what we have been told, that it is a mistranslation and there is no virgin necessarily in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 because the Hebrew word could mean a married woman. Well, just quickly, and I was mentioning this not too long ago, but uh, let it be clear that the Hebrew word translated virgin in the book of the prophet Isaiah is never, ever used in Hebrew or any ancient literature to denote a young married woman. That is simply not the case. And countless authorities and experts have contended for that and established that. There is not a single literary incident where this word has been used in an elastic way to include a young married woman. It is always in Old English a maiden, a damsel, an unmarried woman. But even if you didn't have access to the Hebrew and you didn't know the facts and you didn't know the authorities on this, it is perfectly absurd and foolish to say that the translation in Isaiah should be a young woman only, including possibly a young married woman. It is ridiculous, and I'll tell you why. The context so powerfully demands a virgin. I won't go into the full details, but this is 700 years before Christ or so that Isaiah writes. Judah was in trouble. Judah is the land from which the Messiah will come. The great descendant promised in the Garden of Eden, promised to Abraham, promised to David, the great descendant will come from the Israelites and from Judah. The great descendant will be a, a descendant of David. But now... Judah is in serious peril. No fewer than two kings are up in arms and are coming to invade. They are much more powerful. Judah will be crushed. And King Ahaz of Judah believes that and knows it. But the promise of God is going to be kept. Judah cannot be entirely crushed. The promise of God the prophecies must be fulfilled. And that is what Isaiah effectively tells Ahaz. And then Isaiah, speaking from God, says to the king, God says, you may ask for a great sign. It can be a miraculous sign in the heavens, a great cosmic disturbance. It can be a miraculous sign in the earth some kind of an earthquake or upheaval. Ask what you will. God will give you a tremendous sign 
concerning the safety of Judah and the keeping of his promises. And the king refuses to ask for a sign. He's cynical. He's unbelieving. And Isaiah the prophet is inspired by God to make this prophecy. He looks forward across the centuries into the future and he sees the coming of Christ. And he says, God will give you a a great sign. Behold, see. That's what the word means. The little word in the Hebrew translated, behold, lo, see. Look at this. It indicates something unexpected. Something startling is going to happen. Here's the great sign. What is it? A young woman shall conceive. Will we seriously translate it like that? That's not a great sign. That happens thousands of times every day. That's the most normal thing, the giving of birth. Where's the sign? These cynical people trying to criticize the translation of the Bible at this point are actually very foolish. They've turned Isaiah's words into something absurd and meaningless. Ask of God, he'll give you a great sign. You won't ask? Well, this is the sign. Look, behold, there'll be a birth. What an anticlimax. The translators take the term, a damsel, a maiden, and they quite rightly translate it as it can be translated. A virgin, there's your sign, shall conceive. That's your miracle. That's the unusual thing. The context demands. And that's why practically every serious translation into English of Matthew's Gospel says a virgin. It has to be to say a young woman, which is possible, is to make a nonsense of the text and the critics cannot see their foolishness in doing that. I'm sorry to take time, but it's worth it because if you are a stranger to the Bible, to the Christian faith, you may look up the internet, this or that, and you'll see a flood of anti-Christian cynics criticizing the Bible, saying it's inconsistent, this contradicts this, this is wrong, this is incorrect. These people are for the most part, dear friends, and I say it carefully, so ill-informed and unlettered and unknowing. They do not know what they're saying. And like this is a classic example. They're often saying things that are extremely foolish. They don't understand what they're looking at. But I'd answer that in passing. And here's an example. Well, Isaiah is quoted, verse 23, A virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. God with us. God with us. 
the incarnation of the Lord. Why a virgin birth? Why did it have to be a virgin birth? These are deep things, profound things. Well, the answer is because the child was God and man. The child had two natures. But that's misleading to say that because in a wonderful way the two natures became one. He was God, truly God, and he was man, truly man. So he had to be conceived of the Holy Ghost because it was God incomprehensibly incarnate in human flesh. And he had to be conceived also of a woman because he was truly human, human flesh. That's the meaning of the sign. In what way is a virgin birth a sign? Because God became man. And this is consistent right through the Bible. Even in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, the coming Christ is described very carefully as the woman's seed, not the man's seed, you notice, because he was born of the Holy Ghost, of God and of man. So it had to be a virgin birth. And so it was. It couldn't be by normal reproduction because it was God incarnate. Truly God, our representative, and truly human. Then sometimes people say, but are there not various accounts of virgin births in history? This is not the only one. Oh, but it is. With a single exception apart from Christ, all the historic accounts of virgin births are legends. They're the stuff of legends. They're about mythical gods in the ancient world invented by the minds of man who fought each other and were spiteful to each other and did the most incredible things and immoral things with each other. Gods that look like the most evil and fallen men when you read the ancient mythology. They're myths. They never happened to a real human being. Except for ancient Alexander, there's a myth about his having been born of a virgin. But it's a ridiculous tale and an immoral tale and a cruel tale. There's only one historic figure who actually lived to whom we assign a virgin birth and that is Christ Jesus. And these vague ideas, oh there are lots of accounts, are simply not so. Only legends of unreal people who never actually, literally, historically existed. Only Christ is the only person in the history of the world who has ever prophesied 
No other historical figure in world history has ever been prophesied. When he would come, what he would do, what he would be like, how he would live, what his greatest act would be, how he would die, how he would rise again, all of it prophesied for centuries before in the Old Testament. And we take these things for granted, but only one person in the whole of human history has been foreknown in that way. And that is Christ, the Lord and Saviour. He is unique. God with us. Infinite power entered into human flesh. Think of that. Christ had all power in eternity past. And he entered into a body where he would voluntarily be limited. Of course, he would do his works of power, his great healing miracles, and so on. But he would shut into himself and contain the exercise of his power so that people could even be cruel to him and arrest him and flog him and impale him on a cross because he was living on earth as our representative, living a life of perfect obedience to the Father as though he was submissive to the Father, as though he were inferior to the Father. He lived a perfect life for us so that he could qualify to be our atoning saviour. If one is going to die for my sin and your sin and suffer punishment to bear away the punishment and pay the price of all the sin of all people who would ever be forgiven, that one must be perfect himself. If he had sins of his own to die for, he would be destroyed. If Christ was our substitute and God the Father put upon him all our punishment, he had to be perfect. He had to live under great provocation and self-containment, the most perfect and wonderful life describable. And he did. But he was all unlimited power, contained himself and became submissive a servant to be our representative. The one who knew bliss, eternal bliss and happiness, equal with the Father and the Spirit, he is God, entered into a world where he would know sighs and griefs and pain. God with us. It's astonishing what Christ bore what he was prepared to go through. The one who knew only beauty. He was God. He saw all things, knew all things. In the heavenly places, nothing but beauty and wonder entered into this world of disorder. There is some beauty here, but to God in his holiness, 
There is so much disorder and ugliness and pain and sorrow and sin. He entered into that. The one who received praise from the angelic host 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands from all human souls who've gone before us to heaven, forgiven and saved for all through the Old Testament times, praise and adoration, he came into this world where he would be rejected and spat upon and hated from all quarters. Astonishing kindness and condescension. The one who was the prince of life, the creator of life, came to the place of death and dying souls so that he could carry out his work of redemption and atonement for sin and bear away our punishment for us if we are those who seek him and find him. God with us. It's, it's amazing and wonderful and astonishing. Do you find compassion like that in human hearts? Do you find mercy like that of Christ? Do you find a readiness for sacrifice, an outgoing love and care like that that we see in Christ? What unrewarded kindness. What approachability. Any sinner who comes to him says, Lord, hear my prayer. And his ear is open. Anyone, any soul who says, Lord, show me, help me to understand. He will answer from on high. Such approachability on earth and now in heaven, what kindness and mercy and condescension in our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. God with us, the treasures in that sentence to represent us, to reconcile us with God, to secure eternal life for us. That's why he came. He came to live, he came to atone and to die. Just before we come to conclusion, you know, I'd like to go on to the Gospel of Luke, God with us, and to make a reflection on the shepherds. And we come to conclusion with this. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2 and verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, linen cloths, as used by the poor for their children, and laid him in a manger, a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. Why, there's so much for us, even in that, if we had time to pause, a manger, a feeding trough. That's in accordance with prophecy. He has no form, 
no comeliness that we should desire him, says Isaiah. He's born into a poor family of no means, here laid in a feeding trough. Verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch. How many shepherds, people ask? At least two. Plurality here. Keeping watch. Well, there were four watches in the night. And that's the word that's used in the Greek. Keeping watch, you could translate it. Keeping their watches. Taking it in turns. Two hours sleep. Two hours watching and so on. So there were at least four, maybe. But this is all speculation. Maybe as many as eight. Perhaps the lower number is better. Keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, that little word, behold, see, something spectacular is going to happen. The angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. Beyond my powers of description to offer to you any words as to what it must have been like. But the whole of that gloomy, dark landscape must have been illuminated. And they were astonished and amazed. They were sore afraid. Terrified would be a good word. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Gentiles, this isn't just for Jews. This is for all the world, all nations, all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. There's that word again, Jesus. It means Savior. Saviour from sin and sorrow. Saviour from death and condemnation and the eternal punishment of God. A saviour which is Christ the Lord, the anointed one. That's what Christ means. It translates the Hebrew word for Messiah. Christos in the Greek. The Lord. He is God, member of the triune Godhead. And this, verse 12, shall be a sign unto you. Not the means by which they would find the child, but there'll be a message in what you see. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, a child born into a poor family, a lowly birth, that will be a sign to you. The everlasting God, the second person of the triune Godhead, is coming as a poor child. But let's just focus as we close upon the shepherds. Why shepherds? Why shepherds? Why are they the ones who were appointed to acclaim the birth of Christ? This evening, we'll look at the wise men, the Magi, those mysterious 
philosopher, scholar, priests who came from the east, perhaps a thousand miles to honor Christ. But whatever the Christmas cards tell you, they didn't come at the same time as the shepherds. They came possibly up to 40 days later, by which time Mary and Joseph and the babe were no longer in a stable, but in a house, according to the narrative of the wise men. We don't know quite how many there are. There were, people say three, because there were three gifts. But it's likely there were rather more. Well, we'll consider them. We know they came 40 days later simply because they came at the time of Mary's cleansing, which was 40 days according to the Jewish rite and calendar. And so they were never in the stable. They were never with the shepherds. That's only the artist's imagination. However, who were the people who came to the birth on the day, whenever that day was? We remember it's on the 25th of December. We have no idea when it was. It was more likely in the late summer. However, that's another subject. But it was shepherds. Brings us back to the question. Why shepherds? We have to think. Because there's a message in, in it. May I tell you that shepherds were the lowest class in ancient Israel. If you were a shepherd, you could not even attend court, that is a law court, to give evidence. You were beneath that. I don't know why shepherds were the lowest class. I would have thought shepherding was a very sensitive occupation which had its own demands, especially in those days, and considerable know-how. But it was the lowest class. That's why shepherds. It was a rebuke to the intelligentsia It was a rebuke to the priesthood that it was shepherds who were enrolled to attend the birth of the Savior of the world. But there was more to it even than that. God illuminates, the angel came, the skies lit up, the glory of the Lord shone about them, God illuminates the humble and the lowly. We don't come to God as noble critics. We never find him if we're full of ourselves. We don't come as those who say, God will be pleased to have me. I will deign to consider the Christian message. God illuminates the lowly. I am not fit for him. I am a sinner, only worthy of condemnation. I need his forgiveness and his love. I need a new life and all his power. This is the message of the shepherds. They were chosen. 
the lowest caste, representing the humble and the needy. Those are the people who God illuminates. Those are the people who God lifts up and brings to himself and elevates to heavenly glories. That's enough for the message of the shepherds. The meaning is more important than the narrative. The narrative is literal history. But if you only know the narrative and you don't have the message, you never find the Lord. Why shepherds? I need to be as they were, humble before God, repentant before him, seeking and asking, and he will convert me and illuminate me and give me a new life and the Savior who came to suffer and die, to bring forgiveness, will be mine. Some of the treasures of the nativity.